Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 cases on the rise in Canada. 67% of those new cases between 20 and 40 years of age. Could they be responsible for the second wave? China is saying that their COVID-19 vaccine could be ready by November. But do we want it? Especially if it hasn't been adequately tested. According to a new poll, Canada's view of the United States has dropped to the lowest level in decades, but still not as much as China. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hey, young and not-so-young people, 67% of new COVID-19 cases in Ontario are between 20 and 40 years old. Do you want that on you if a second wave hits? Follow the protocol like we are in school. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Wow. Back to school there in the trenches, and he's, you know, got the elbows up. Uh, that... He's back at school. He's not here doing it live. These were done last night. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping us between the pipes. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show, uh, week number 27. Feel free to uh, enjoy the conversation. As you know, over the summer, things kind of uh, settled down a little bit, relaxed a little bit, got down below 100 cases. Things are starting to pick up again. Many are asking if uh, what the second wave is going to be like, what it looks like. Perhaps we're wading into it right now. Uh, cases today uh, dropped back down to 251. Uh, half of those, roughly half, not quite half, uh, in the Toronto and Peel regions. So down from 313 yesterday to 251, but obviously uh, not where we were, hovering around the uh, 100 mark. So it will be fascinating to watch how this all unfolds. And what do we attribute the second wave to? Obviously, stage three opening up, the loosening of restrictions. Uh, Obviously, more people are going back to work which, again, is, is just uh, going to create more contact. Uh, and what's also disturbing is that uh, a lot of these, between the age of 20 and 40, the majority of these new cases, uh, and at this point, uh, the good news is we seem to be still keeping it out of long-term care homes and such. Let's bring in Ketra Smith, uh, sorry, Ketra Schmidt, Associate Professor, Center for Engineering in Society, Concordia University, and is with us now. Ketra, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Are you know everybody's talking about the second wave? What's the second wave going to look like? Ba 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 ba. Are we actually wading into the second wave now? As we see these numbers creep up over that sort of uh, 100 mark where we were in in Ontario on a daily basis. So the numbers are creeping up, uh, but this was to be predicted, right? Um, mm-hmm. As kids go back to school, and um, although the rules vary by province, uh, the rules are probably not as strict as they need to be to But let's be honest it. here. Where we are right now, this has nothing to do with the kids. This is way too early for reading any of the information into kids, which have just, I guess for you guys, started earlier. But for us, yeah. we're just going back this week. So they're saying yeah. this is information from even a month uh, or so ago. You're quite right about that. So it's been the other kinds of reopenings that have been happening. Uh, But I also think it has something to do with messaging, right? So if the messaging is that school is safe, we have to go back to school, um, and in some cases we don't have to wear masks in school, 
and we don't have to be as distanced in school. I think that messaging is something that everyone is hearing, that maybe there's not so much to be worried about. Sort of that we're out of the woods, we flattened the curve, and now we can go back to normal, but no, that's not the case. Yeah, and we worked hard to get to where we were, right? Every one of us actually has given up a lot to get there, so it's, um, it's a bit hard now. What are we to take from, we, we certainly know younger people less affected by this, older people, obviously, we, we remember what happened in the early weeks and months of this pandemic uh, with seniors in, in care homes and such. Uh, two-thirds, 67% of the new cases in Ontario, and I don't know if this is a Canada-wide uh, stat, uh, between the ages of 20 and 40. Um, is how come this demographic, why is, why are we seeing the spikes? And and I mean, these numbers are quite high uh, to be two thirds of the new cases. Why do you think we're seeing that? Uh, And could this demographic help kick off the second wave? Well, yes, definitely. It could help kick off the second wave. That might be what's happening right now, right? So I would tend to say that that is what's happening. We're, we're starting probably in the second wave. We're in the second wave with those spikes, uh, with the spikes we're seeing. Yeah, I think so. Uh, So definitely they can kick it off. Um, And I think that some of this comes back to the early messaging about who is at more and less risk. Um, That's true to some degree in terms of acute hospitalization, right? But if you're in a 20 to 40 range, that doesn't mean you're safe. Perhaps you're a little safer in terms of the disease. But what we're not talking about very much are post-COVID symptoms. And those are not necessarily mild, even for people in that age range. So what should be or what is the message for the 20 to 40-year-olds, who obviously that's that's who we have to focus on uh, in this messaging. That's where we're seeing a majority of the cases. What sort of messaging do we present to them? really difficult. So what I think is with the gradual reopening, it's been really hard for people to understand what is now safe and what isn't safe. Before, when we were closed, we had a very clear idea, don't be indoors together without a mask, don't be very close. Right. So right now we have something that's a lot more subtle that we need to message. They've been doing a lot of contract tracing here in Quebec, and they're still saying that the majority of cases are being transmitted through social gatherings, right? Mm-hmm. But to me what's difficult is, well, the bars are open, restaurants are open, yeah. um, and, and in fact th- those are drivers obviously, of cases, um, but but that, those are the risky behaviors, right? So there's finding ways to continue to be together and have socialization that is safe. I, I think that's the, the kinds of messaging that needs to happen. But I, I think by and large people in that age group don't feel very much at risk. So what messaging to university students who are perhaps at the bottom end of that uh, of that 20 to 40 demographic? Uh, uh, many of the students are taking class online, but uh, meaning there's no lecture halls, that sort of thing, but a lot of them are still on residence. And what we're finding, is, especially in the smaller towns, you know, as the campuses in their common areas are closed down, the kids might be in the in the residence and such under strict protocol. But then they all head out to the small town and 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 start sort of invading their public spaces because the universities and campuses are closed down. Where do you think uh, universities will be in the next month? That's a really good question. Um, so for us, we're also closed down, and I will say the students are hungry for interaction, even in class, right? So we've gone to asynchronous, um, and I have 
So I post my slides ahead of time. I post a recorded lecture, and we just meet to talk. They want to stay on as long as possible, right? So they they do have yeah. social needs. We all do, and those aren't yeah. being met. Aren't being met. Um, for me, not to be alarmist, but there are significant uh, there's there's evidence that there are post COVID symptoms for people in all age groups, mm-hmm. and. To me, the government, I think, has not been trying to talk about those because they don't want to panic people, but they, people have a really false sense of safety, which you have anyway if you were in your early 20s. That's unavoidable. Yeah. So uh, as we, uh, you know, I guess things have leveled off today here a little bit in Ontario, but, but what are you anticipating in the next month? Oh, cases are going to rise. But I think what... I've seen a lot of people worried about, are we going to go into a situation like the U.S.? Um, You know, we had a competent response. Governments at the provincial level and the federal level were competent. They made it possible for us to do what we did. What we did wasn't perfect. It wasn't incredible, but it was good enough, and it saved a lot of lives. Uh, So I do have faith, although I don't love the back-to-school plans, I do have faith that um, we will have a shutdown if we need to, or something in between a total shutdown and where we are now. So I do have enough faith in our provincial and federal government that they will deal with this competently. And the second wave response obviously will be different than the first. We're not going to go back and repeat the same thing over again, uh, which I think a lot of people are fearing. It'll be different this time, will it not? Well, I would imagine, right, I think we have figured out some things that are safer. On the other hand, we're going into fall and then winter. Yeah. Um, so the big advantage before is that uh, we were in the spring and, and moving forward to being able to do more things outdoors. And that's going to flip. Ketra Schmidt has been with us, Associate Professor, Center for Engineering in Society, Concordia University. Ketra, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Speaking of COVID-19 and chatter all the time about a vaccine, when will it arrive? China is now saying that their COVID-19 vaccine could be available for the general public as early as November. But are they going to share it? And are they going to share it with Canada? Uh, Considering a deal has already fallen through, uh, does this have any relation to the Huawei CFO detention? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald-Laurie Institute, and he is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. So uh, your thoughts, uh, will China have a vaccine before Christmas? And if they do, will they share it with Canada? Well, certainly there are a lot of vaccines out there, and the question is really the extent to which they've been sufficiently tested to see if they're both effective and safe. So I think from the point of view of the West, uh, we feel that China might be rushing it a bit if they if they push this thing out in a big way um, before we're sure that it's the right vaccine to address the pandemic. But that being said, you know, it's pretty clear that the Chinese Communist Party does not have too much in the way of scruples or concerns about human life. And so the idea that if there was a vaccine available that should be shared with Canada so that Canada can be involved in testing or production, and they deny that to us uh, because of the ongoing um, uh, diplomatic crisis between Canada and China, because they insist that we should be releasing the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou uh, yesterday, if not before, um, you know, is definitely within the realm of possibility. You know, it's hard to imagine uh, the depths of the 
venality of the Chinese regime. I mean, this, after all, is a regime which is running uh, concentration camps and genocidal program against the Turkic Muslims in the west of China, and and their inability to to deal fairly with regard to human concerns is uh, pretty clear. So, the idea that they would not that they would deny us something that they'd give to everybody else on the basis of this crisis is not at all out of the question. That being said, uh, Charles, does Canada or any allies want this in November if uh, they don't think it's been thoroughly tested? Uh, they, they certainly don't want to cut corners here. Do we want this vaccine? Well, I don't think that we want it until we're sure it's the right stuff. And, you know, China, of course, is one of, of many, many places that are producing vaccines and currently testing them. The Russians have one out that they've been injecting people with in large quantities that you know, we are suspicious about the the virtue of that. I mean, the thing is, if you start injecting people with a vaccine that's not been you know, sufficiently tested and safe, the consequences could be horrendous. Yeah. So I, I think we have to trust our, our um, health experts here and uh, follow what, what the government believes is the best path for Canadians. I mean, after all, obviously it's in everyone's interest to address this pandemic in as expeditious a fashion as possible but we have to be concerned about safety for canadians and don't want to see unnecessary mortality or or um you, you know uh, uh, variants on the on the virus that could in fact make the situation even worse than it is now uh, many have criticized uh, Health Minister Patty Haidu in downplaying uh, China during this pandemic and, and, and not being as critical as others think she should be. Uh, is, is this the reason why we, we, we are trying to stay in their good books if, in case there is a vaccine? Well, I, you know, Minister Haidu's statements about China are puzzling in the sense that they appear to be very much misinformed. And one does wonder in general about our government's policy towards China, this kind of appeasement and pretending that that regime is is behaving in a way consistent with the expectations of the norms of the international community um, may not be the right strategy. I think it shows us to be weak and easily menaced by and bullied by China. And I think these kind of statements um, by our ministers and other elite people that attempt to appease the Chinese communist regime are actually delaying um, the release of Kovrikin's favor because I think we're sending out a message to the Chinese government that if they engage in hostage diplomacy and continue to hold Mr. Kovrik and Mr. Favor, that we will not be engaging China in any meaningful way about their violations of international law and trade and diplomacy area. And, um, and in fact, you know, this outrageous thing where where they were collaborating with Canada on development of a vaccine and then, um, you know, refused to send us the samples that uh, that the contract committed them to, claiming that the Chinese customs would not release them out of China. We're hearing information, too, today, Charles, that the U.S. is warning its citizens about traveling there or Hong Kong uh, and has issued travel warnings. Uh, your thoughts on that? Should Canada be doing the same? Oh, yes, I think Talking so. about arbitrar- arbitrary detention, of course. Yes, arbitrary detention and other other issues, um, you know, such as denial of exit permission, and um, and uh, in general the risk of of being had up for um, statements, say, on Hong Kong under Article 38 of the National Security Law, people who 
who say things uh, in violation of that law, even foreign nationals in foreign countries are still subject to to uh, that legislation and possible um, um, imprisonment, incarceration in China, uh, pending you know no due process of law. So, I mean, China is definitely a dangerous place for Canadians to go because of the arbitrary nature of um, of the arrest of Kovrigan's favor and the other actions that the Chinese government has undertaken. So. I think um, it's certainly not a place that one would want to go for for touristic purposes, even when the pandemic is over. And if you do have to go, I would certainly register with the Canadian um, authorities and uh, stay the least amount of time necessary. If you know if there's a pressing um, business or other reason to have to enter the People's Republic of China, I I think um, you know this is really a, a very serious matter and and one that we have to be careful about. And the recent revelations of China's um, massive databases on Canadian citizens suggest that they are looking for people to subvert and and uh, and use for their own state purposes in a way which you know is is uh, sort of scary, like uh, like a science fiction movie to think they have so much data on us and are using artificial intelligence to analyze it and see um, you know what they can do next to further their interest and and uh, make Canada pay for what we've done to uh, Meng Wanzhou. Uh, last question here, uh, Charles. CBC have a, have a report this morning uh, talking about how some experts are warning that Canadian universities should close off access to sensitive research uh, from China. Your thoughts there? Yes. I mean, the thing is that you know universities don't have a mandate for national security. They have a mandate for sharing knowledge to the extent possible and collaborating with uh, people around the world to further the the bounds of knowledge, but the Chinese government has been sending people into Canadian universities to collaborate in sensitive areas, particularly dual-use technologies, which have military applications, under false pretenses. In other words, the professors don't realize that that their visiting scholar is, in fact, working for a Chinese military institution and is not simply a professor interested in, in the research as such. So I think from that point of view, our government really needs to be much more aggressive in um, in preventing this from happening because, you know, we don't want to see our classified technologies transferred to agents of what could well be a hostile state for military or other surveillance use that uh, goes against our Canadian interests and our Canadian values. Charles Burton has been with us, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good to speak with you again. Let's bring in Margaret McQuaig-Johnson, Senior Fellow, Institute of Science, Society, Policy, University of Ottawa, Senior Fellow, China Institute, University of Alberta, Distinguished Fellow, Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. Margaret, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks. Your thoughts on this uh, recent report that is uh, coming out of the CBC, that we should be uh, more aware of what Chinese students are studying and their access to sensitive information in Canada. I believe the headline is, Experts Call on Canadian Universities to Close Off China's Access to Sensitive Research. What are your thoughts? Well, I've been um, advising the government on this for the last few years, um, raising awareness um, among government officials as to how Canadian research might be being used in the Canadian or the Chinese military and security agencies, and I, I've been very concerned about this. I've been um, a collaborator with China on research and development since my first trip in 1979 to China, 
And it, this, it's been great for decades, but in the last, uh, I would say, four years, since 2016, China has a new policy for the integration of military and civilian technology development. And what that means is that uh, Chinese researchers and Chinese companies are required to partner with Chinese uh, military scientists and engineers. And, and what they're trying to do there is force feed new technologies into the Chinese military, uh, technologies that wouldn't even exist um, unless civilian scientists and engineers were collaborating with military scientists. What that means for Canadian researchers is if they um, are, are um, partnering with somebody in China, then they're going to find that uh, their um, research is being redirected into military applications. In some cases, they won't even uh, learn that that's happening. It, it, it will just be done kind of seamlessly at the Chinese end. So that's one big problem, and, and it's, we're particularly susceptible uh, in areas like artificial intelligence, in which we're very strong and they're trying to get uh, as much of our uh, research as they can, as well as um, biotechnology, advanced materials, quantum computing. So these are areas that are a big concern. And then they're also sending military scientists and engineers to Canada into our universities to learn whatever they can. You, you've said how you've been collaborating uh, with China on projects like this for many, many years. It was different then than it is now. When did it change? Why did it change? Did you notice this right away? Yes. Um, it started, uh, well, the, the general policy for the integration of civilian and military technology has been kind of in the background in China for, um, I would say, 10 years. But in 2016, um, the leadership of China uh, put a big emphasis on it in their strategy for innovation-driven development. And since then, Xi Jinping himself has been leading the effort. He chairs the Central Commit Commission for Military and Civilian Development. So this is something that comes right from the top. And it's not something where uh, labs in China are requested um, or invited to uh, contact military scientists or, or engineers. They're required to. It's, it's, they, they have to do it. Um, and so Canadian researchers partnering with them wouldn't necessarily see that that's what was happening. Did, uh, how does or how has government reacted to your concerns? What you've just been saying to us, what's the government reaction to this? How concerned are they? They're very concerned, um, and it's, it's been a mounting concern over the last two years, I would say. And they've, um, a year ago, they started themselves meeting with uh, senior university administrators and briefing them on what the risks are. In addition, um, there was a set of guidelines that was developed between uh, government agencies and Universities Canada to pr be provided to professors and uh, graduate students uh, who might be com coming into contact with um, people in other countries. It's not directed specifically at China. It's generic. 
but it really reads as if it were directed at China, um, and advises them on what the risks are. It's very user-friendly, um, so I think those are great uh, initiatives. But in, uh, in addition, I think, and this may be happening, we're not sure, but they should be screening anybody who needs a visa to come to Canada. They should be screening them against uh, the list of 160 defense universities in China. This is a list that was drawn up uh, by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and it, it ranks these universities as high, uh, medium, or low risk for um, part, for uh, developing military technologies, and and Canadian so universities are actually are partnering with those universities. I was just about to say there are Canadian universities who have partnered with these universities. Are they aware that what they're sharing and talking about is also shared with military there? Um, I would say they're becoming aware. Um, and so, you know, I, I was looking this afternoon uh, at um, uh, an artificial intelligence group uh, in Canada that's been partnering with Hangzhou Dianzi uh, University, which is a high risk with secret security credentials. So the question then is, what research are they, are they collaborating on? And is it something that might be uh, being directed into uh, these military purposes? Um, so they're becoming aware from the, the scientist perspective. And, you know, I've worked with scientists, Canadian scientists, a lot through the years. Um, one of their big concerns is academic freedom. And I completely get that. You, you know, they have to be able to um, do the research that, uh, that they think needs to be done. And our best innovations are, are come about when that happens. Um, but at the same time, I don't think they want to be feeding the uh, military apparatus of China. And so, you know, they should be made completely aware of the risks of these universities. Each university administration should be uh, giving out this list of 160 defense universities to, um, to what what uh, universities in Canada? In China. What universities in Canada are on that list? Who who are involved in this? Do we know? Um, so the list is is a list of Chinese universities. You'd have to go back um, to every Canadian university and see which ones they list as they're partnering on. So, you know, I was looking at at the website for a Canadian. Uh, university AI group and and several universities uh, in China came up. Um, one is this high risk secret one, and the other is a medium risk. Um, and do we know what universities do we know um, what universities in Canada they're involved with? Pardon me. I guess I'm looking for the names of the Canadian universities that they're involved with. Oh, okay. Um, that particular one is University of Alberta. But mm -hmm. all the big research universities in Canada are partnering in some way with China. So they need to be taking this list of 160 and going through it and seeing which ones are flagged as high or medium risk. Um, now, is that the university's responsibility or is that something that should come from the government of Canada? Where, do, where would that guideline come from? Um, well, they already have guidelines of, risk, um, of general risk. 
the list of 160 uh, should be uh, given to university administrators who would give it to the various research groups across their university. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I know that some universities say, well, it's not our business to be um, uh, enforcing national security, but they're on the ground and um, thesis isn't, you know, in their labs every single day, obviously. Um, and I think they have an obligation to be doing whatever they can to ensure that um, Canadian researchers aren't accidentally or inadvertently um, partnering with uh, military universities. How do universities balance this, Margaret, considering they get an awful lot of money from China and Chinese students to come here? Right, right. Um, well, it becomes right. a monetary um, issue. They depend when, on it. Um, when they partner in China, uh, some of the funding comes from China, um, maybe indirectly through their their partnering uh, university in China. So um, it's something that's in the back of their minds. But frankly, um, in artificial intelligence in particular, uh, Canadian researchers don't want to be feeding military um, um, technologies with their their own research. They want their research, and this is very broadly across artificial intelligence scientists and engineers in Canada, they want their research used for positive um, social benefits to Canada, uh, not to military um, agencies, and so they won't even return phone calls often from Department of National Defense or CSIS in Canada, and yet accidentally, inadvertently, they may be uh, unknowingly partnering with somebody in China who um, is part of that uh, military or security apparatus. Margaret McQuaig Johnston with us, Senior Fellow, Institute of Science, Society and Policy, University of Ottawa, and Senior Fellow, China Institute, University of Alberta. Thank you so much for the time, Margaret. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye. You know, obviously, uh, our, uh, um, surprisingly, or maybe not, University of Waterloo, one of those universities that has uh, that uh, people are red flagged at as to what their involvement is with all of this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk uh, politics with Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. A new Pew Research poll says Canada's view of the United States has dropped to the lowest level in two decades. Uh, and, of course, the story in around aluminum tariffs probably isn't helping. And uh, we're just uh, getting the information now. Uh, on this uh, story that, in fact, uh, the United States has backtracked on the uh, 10% aluminum uh, tariffs on Canada, uh, apparently because of uh, our retaliation, although, again, this story is is just breaking as we hear and say that uh, the United States is saying that uh, they're not feeling the threat towards the end of 2020 that I guess they were prior to August. Again, to talk about all of this, Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, doing fine, and nice to talk to you again, Scott. So, Henry, uh, this news is just breaking. We really know very little about it. But what's your first initial initial reaction that uh, they're backtracking, the U.S. is backtracking on the 10% aluminum tariffs they were going to uh, put on Canadian product? 
Well, I think there was two things uh, at work here. First of all, uh, the, the, uh, the, the aluminum tariff made absolutely no sense, no economic sense, to, Amer- to American manufacturers because many of them use them, say, in the automotive, uh, the, the motor vehicle industry. They need that aluminum uh, to essentially make their products, and, with the, and they're the ones who would be paying for the cost uh, of that tariff. So they, he was hurting his own manufacturers. I mean, Trump was hurting his own manufacturers to please his base. But it made so it made no economic sense for the United States. And then the second thing is that the Canada was, you know, was beginning to say, okay, we're gonna, we uh, we're going to retaliate to the same dollar amount of whatever your what the whatever the tariff was. And but and they and the Canada is very good because what they do is they uh, basically pick on industries and and things that are in uh, states that are uh, swing states or states that support Trump. So they don't punish people states that voted against Trump uh, in 2016. They 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 went they were planning to you know go against those states that were. Uh, uh, you know, uh, likely to support them again, to support Trump again, and so, and, and basically send a message to those people is that you don't have a very smart president when he starts to hurt us, and and then retali- and you have to suffer the retaliation. So I, I think both of those things were involved, and in somebody, and the people in the White House figured out this is not a good thing to be doing when we have uh, only a few weeks left in the the U- U.S. presidential campaign. But then again, this was all brought up as part of the U.S. election campaign, wasn't it? I mean, as another distraction, you know, put, uh, you know, make uh, foreigners look like bad guys, put tariffs on Canadian products, what have you. Uh, the fact that he has lifted this, what does that say? Or again, does well, it matter? Because he'll just he's... sell it as a win anyway. Yeah, I think he's he's basically trying to reassure the business community that, OK, we, we did make a mistake here without saying it, um, because, you know, the. Uh, the last thing he wants, at the, it, you know, in the last few weeks of the campaign, for the for major business organizations to say we got a president who doesn't handle our trade relationship with our best uh, our best you know our best uh, customer and our be- the the country we need the most who's right next to us, and I I, I think he's he he wants to avoid you know the, having those type of people come out against him and he and we are have been seeing people some people surprising me who have been coming out very strongly against him in the campaign over the last week or so and i i just don't think he wants to have the american business community get out there and you know start you know, whipping them you know because they're they're certainly not happy with the way he's he's handled the trade files with the united states is this another situation, Henry, where he creates a problem and then fixes it? Well, he has <laughs> to, at least looks like he's fixing it. Yeah, he has to. He has to do this constantly because basically he has a base, a base that really is a very emotional base that does not a base that is not very sophisticated about economics and how our modern industrial economies uh, especially in the united states and together with canada and the U- and mexico are all intertwined they don't understand that and if you do something that you know you that that attacks either the industries in canada seemingly attacks the industries in canada or or in mexico essentially you wind up hurting the, you, you know in the industries in the united states and causes problems for them and, and the base doesn't understand that. They're very um, uh, emotional. They don't understand economics. 
and but the traditional conser- um, Republicans, basically, who are the business community, they say this is absolutely crazy. And you know the way he's acting, and uh, so so you know he so he has to oscillate between these two. He doesn't you know it's hard to please both groups because they have such a different view and understanding of how the economy works in the United States. All right, let's talk about uh, perception around the world. It certainly seems to be a divisive world. We're hoping that somehow COVID-19 unites us, or at least our allies again. Um, We certainly know how Canada's and the world's perception of of China has absolutely plummeted in the last six months. But now we're seeing evidence of how Canadians are feeling about uh, those in the United States. Uh, And and a new Pew uh, Pew Research poll says that uh, Canadians' view of the U.S. has dropped to its lowest level in nearly two decades. Uh, can we su- be surprised about this when we're talking on a day that they've they've uh, rebounded on a on a 10% aluminum tariff? Yeah, well, I, n- no, not at all. I mean, it is interesting. I read the uh, the uh, the uh, summary of the uh, uh, article about the uh, the Pew report, and it's interesting. They didn't even mention trade. They thought it was mainly due to uh, the Canadians' view that he is mis- that uh, you know the uh, president has completely mishandled the c- coronavirus. They're very happy that the border's closed. They want to keep it closed because they think there's, you know, there's just a lot of people who might come up who who have the uh, coronavirus, and so they think that this is the president's fault. And then and they, he just keeps getting lower and lower marks from Canadians whenever he talks or does anything about the about the virus. And uh, so they they mention that as the big thing, and they all also said that they thought, uh, especially over the course of the summer, they were aghast at the way Amer- local political police authorities in the United States treated people uh, who were, you know, being arrested for a minor right. crime, who were minorities, or people who had mental problems. And the type of videos we're seeing, you know, of the police leaning on the throats of, of people, you know, who, who are being arrested for something very minor, or, you know, people, uh, you know, point-blank uh, shots in the back of people who don't see, seem to be unarmed, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these uh, pictures of uh, that, what they see in the U.S. is, you know, is so abhorrent to Canadians who, who are not, you know, basically not used to that. And I think they're also probably surprised about how, in a way, from a Canadian point of view, that, that, the, that the people, you know, that a lot of the local U.S. police forces seem to be out of control compared to what people expect uh, from the police forces in Canada and I that that was not mentioned in by the by the Pew people but I think I think that's something that a, a lot of Canadians never never really perceived they don't really perceive and, until recently you know the the things that we're seeing in the US that the but you know some of the police are doing we would we generally would not see that in Canada in general in general you wouldn't see that that much violence towards uh, so is apprehending is this all about Donald Trump or just the reaction to the America he has created? Well, I think that I think it's both because they think Donald Trump is trying to recreate this new America. He is he is he you know, he's he right I mean he's campaigning as the president of law and order. He he would never criticize uh, the police who, you know who are doing these things uh you know, engaging in these tactics and are being very aggressive towards protesters, towards people who, you know, may have committed a minor crime or to people who are mentally ill. And, uh, they did, you know, and he, he's just seen in, 
is enabling people, you know, police who have these instincts to be, you know, relatively brutal towards people they view as law lawbreakers. And I think that's uh, very. Uh, I don't think Canadians expect that. I mean, you know, they, you know, Canadians expect that basically that uh, police are, you know, are there to, you know, to serve and protect really, uh, and and to be uh, pretty decent. Now, sometimes there's some mistakes made, but they're not. We don't have them so, you know, the graphic type of of cases that we have in the U.S. And would a change shocking. would a change in president you think Henry change Canadians' perception of America? I, I think they would. I, I I do think they would, uh, particularly about uh, particularly by older Canadians. I think uh, they will like they will like basically the the personality and the way uh, a, a Joe Biden would handle things. And I think uh, you know I think uh, Joe Biden. Uh, well, we don't, you know, trade. We're not. I, I think probably he he would consider Canada to be more of a friend than than uh, than uh, than uh, than Trump has. I mean, just this whole thing about the aluminum. But looking at how Canada was just been treated by by Trump uh, over over those four years, and though you know, here we are, we view ourselves as the best friend the United States has, and and we constantly get beaten up by this guy. You know, uh, we've had in the past uh, not only other aluminum tariffs, we have a steel tariff, of course, and this is very important in southern, uh, you know, uh, Ontario and Hamilton. Uh, Yeah, so I think people say, well, why is is he doing this to us? We're your friend. And and I think he he really suffers compared to, you know, uh, previous presidents. Certainly his immediate predecessor was terribly popular in, in Canada, you know, I think over 80 percent of the people basically thought Barack Obama did a good job as president. You know, now in the United States, you got people who are, you know, they're down to about 20 percent who think he's doing a decent job. It's just a, a dramatic fall, and it's just simply because the comparison to previous presidents uh, is just, uh, you know, just makes Trump look very, very bad to Canadians. Obviously, obviously, this poll talks about Canadians' view of right. America and how it's declined. But is that any different from any of our other allies and their view of America? Oh, there, yeah. The, well, when we get to Western Europe and those allies, they they view the U.S. as now very unreliable. Now, you know, they're they're much closer, of course, to some dangers. Uh, and their dangers, well, they have a number of dangers. First of all, they have uh, Russia as a danger. They have to, you know, a number of them have to be very worried about things that Russia does. They have uh, they have problems with, uh, you know, to with with a lot of problems with uh, um, immigration coming into into Europe from both Africa and uh, and and from Asia. And so they 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 have they they are on the front line of of, of a lot of problems, and they really need. Uh, you know the support of the U.S. to essentially try to have a stable world order, particularly in in um, in Europe. And basically, for so many of the European leaders, they they view this long period of peace, relative peace in Europe. I mean, it's it's, it's extraordinarily long uh, since the end of the Second World War, and and so much of it has been because the U.S. has been there, has been a promoter of peace and a promoter of democracy. And uh, then they, now they find the U.S. is just totally unreliable. And, and they see a president who seems to be beholden to their main uh, adversary that they're worried about, and that is uh, Putin, in, uh, the leader of Russia. So they're, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all uh, that uh, uh, you know, the other, all these other countries have a very negative view of the United States. And it's really about negative view of, of the leadership right now in the United States.
Your thoughts on uh, the Bob Woodward book, uh, the tapes of uh, the president back in March and in February and such saying uh, something completely different than he was telling uh, the American people. Uh, You know, many have said, uh, yeah, this is going to take him down. But we've been saying that many times over and over again for years. Uh, Will this resonate? Does this does this hold any more weight than anything else? It it reinforces the view that he mishandled the the whole coronavirus issue it just adds more confirmation for those people who who are looking for for more confirmation or you know maybe split between well maybe trump is might be good on the economy but bad on the uh coronavirus but then this comes out and they say well maybe i ought to lean and make my decision on how i feel about how he did with dealt with the virus rather than do the economy so we're, we're talking about a small group but it is it is a small group that can maybe swing some states because there are people who oftentimes are wrestling with you know you know, two or three different issues, and Trump looks good on one, but he doesn't look so good on the other. And they have, you know, they have to make a decision which issue is going to be more more important to them. So I think certainly this does not help at all. And I think uh, one of the comments that Trump made that it, it was probably a mistake for him to talk to, you know, Woodward and give him all these interviews. <laughs> That's on. Un- I yeah, can't he, even. I can't believe he did that, that in any way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he did it. And I, I don't know if you saw, but uh, yeah. uh, also on Stephen Colbert's late night show, he had Bob Woodward on last night. And it was 19 interviews. I thought it was 18. It was 19 times he actually uh, had conversations with him, which is, is just surprising to me at no end. Uh, Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, always happy to be with you and help out, Scott. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.